Brian to it, and uh, I want to preach from Isaiah throughout Advent. 66 chapters, shouldn't be a problem to get through it in four weeks. <laughs> um, so, no, this will be selected, selected passages from Isaiah. Uh, I have pitched my tent in Isaiah this last couple of months, and I am having a blast in Isaiah. I'm just loving this book, this prophet, um, and I've, I've called this this little series, Hope in Dark Times. Um, these are dark times. This is a difficult winter for many people. Uh, for some people, it's a difficult winter for financial reasons. What leaves the bank account each month is steadily increasing, but what comes in doesn't seem to ever change. For some, it's a difficult winter because of grief. And for some, it's a difficult winter because of disappointment. Plans have fallen apart. You started 2022 thinking by the end of this year, I'll be wherever or such and such will have happened. And it has not. And you're disappointed. And you're discouraged. These are dark times. Steve was here on Friday night and we spoke on the phone on Tuesday because he wanted to know what was the lay of the land, what way should he posture himself for this gig, uh, was it going to be a drag people in off the streets evangelism type night or what was it going to be and I said Steve there's a lot of hurt in this church, there's a lot of disappointment, there's a lot of discouragement, there's a lot of pain and there's a lot of grief. And I said, just come and encourage us. <laughs> just encourage us. I said, we've been inviting a few people. There'll be a few guests there, a few uh, faces who have been about the place the odd time, but maybe aren't here that often. But I said, come and encourage the church because the church is hurting. A lot of people are going through dark times. And I have for a long time viewed Advent as this season of waiting in the dark. Let's read from Isaiah chapter 40. Isaiah chapter 40. I'm going to read the first 11 verses, spend a bit of time on those, and then a real quick skate through the rest of the chapter. Isaiah chapter 40. Awesome words. Okay, this is just hope in dark times. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for, and that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice of one calling. In the wilderness prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill made low. The rough ground shall become level, and the rugged places a plain. And the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all people will see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, cry out. And I said, what shall I cry? All people are like grass. And all their faithfulness is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall, 
because the breath of the Lord blows on them. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God endures forever. You who bring good news to Zion, go up on a high mountain. You who bring good news to Jerusalem, lift up your voice with a shout. Lift it up. Do not be afraid. Say to the towns of Judah, here is your God. See, the sovereign Lord comes with power and he rules with a mighty arm. See, his reward is with him and his recompense accompanies him. He tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms and carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those who have young. Let's pray. Father, come by the power of your Holy Spirit and take these incredible words that Isaiah wrote to encourage and to comfort your people then and use them, I pray, to encourage and comfort your people now. I pray for hope to rise, Father, in the dark times that people are navigating. Comfort, hope, strength in the name of Jesus. Amen. Just want to make sure that you don't get cold. Which means this side's going to get clean roasted and you'll still be cold. Isaiah splits neatly into two sections. If you've ever read the book or had a look at the structure of it, it's bizarre in how it sort of matches the Bible itself. 39 books in the Old Testament, 39 chapters in the first section of Isaiah, 27 books in the New Testament, 27 chapters in the second section of Isaiah. And at the end of the first section in Isaiah 39, Isaiah prophesies an event known as the exile, which we know plenty about because we've spent half the year talking about it. And What has happened in chapter 39 is King Hezekiah has done something really quite foolish in that he has invited the Babylonians to come in and see all his stuff, (laughs) all his treasures, all the stuff in the temple, all the... All the things that, that, that Israel has, he, he, he has this exercise in pride and he brings in the Babylonians and shows it to them. And they basically go away and over the next few years start to think to themselves, we'll be having that. And Isaiah 39 ends with a prophecy of an exile that is coming. And then Isaiah 40 begins and addresses the end of the exile. And we have a bit of a problem because in between Isaiah 39 and Isaiah 40, Isaiah dies, (laughs) okay? About 70 years at least pass, probably closer to about 120 between Isaiah 39 and Isaiah 40. And Isaiah's dead. (laughs) In fact, tradition holds that the way Isaiah died was that he was sawn in two by Hezekiah's wicked son, a guy called Manasseh. And when you read in Hebrews 11 about those who were sawn asunder for their faith, that's thought to be a reference to Isaiah. 
He died in between 39 and 40. So who on earth (laughs) wrote chapter 40 to chapter 66? How do we explain the fact that his book goes on and the first part of his book addresses a period of history 150 or 120 years before the second part of his book? Who's talking to me in Isaiah chapter 40? Who is putting these things together? If you flick in your, in your Bible to Isaiah chapter 8, I just want to show you something that I think helps to fix this problem. Isaiah chapter 8, just a little verse that's sort of buried away that you could, you could overlook. It says in verse 16 of Isaiah 8, oh, I actually have it here, forgot that I had it. Bind up this testimony, Isaiah 8, 16. Bind up this testimony of warning and seal up God's instruction among my disciples. I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the descendants of Jacob. I will put my trust in him. Isaiah had a school and Isaiah had disciples. Young men who would have lived with him and worked around him and learned from him. And the most convincing idea about what's going on in the second part of Isaiah from 40 to 66 is that he wrote all of these things obviously while he was alive and he gave them to his disciples and he said cherish these, treasure these, hold on to these, God's people are going to need them in the future. And they were held on to and they were protected and then they were brought out in the future. So these are Isaiah's words. But in the time that they're being read and in the time that they have been collated here, Isaiah is dead. He knew that there were dark days coming. In fact, if you remember last week in chapter 6, we read about how Isaiah's own ministry would be one that would bring judgment. Isaiah's ministry, as he preaches, people's hearts would get hard and their eyes would get blind and their ears would get dull and they would reject the word of the Lord and that would be their judgment. And Isaiah asks, how long is this going to go on for? And and he's told it's going to go on basically until the cities lie waste and all the inhabitants are gone. It's going to go on for a long, long time. And now what's coming in chapters 40 and after is at the end of that period when everything has been wrecked and the people have been destroyed, they are shattered, their whole world is shattered. This is where these chapters come in. These are written to people whose world has been shattered. Okay? Some of you might fit into that right now, or you might have fitted into it two years ago, but this, these words are written to those for whom everything has fallen apart. And cheap comfort is a waste of time. Cheap comfort is cruel. It is not going to provide these people with what they need. Isaiah is going to give them something that is real and that is based on the word of God and the character of God. You see, God's going to do something for this people that has never, ever been done before. Never, never have a people been brought back from exile. Never. Whenever you took a a people into exile, that people group ceased to exist. From that moment on, they did not go back to their own land. They did not have their own identity. They did not have their own army. You brought them to your nation and they ceased to exist. And God's going to do something that's never been done before. He's going to bring a people back from exile and reestablish their identity. 
And he says, without any sort of transition, without any warning, you go from Isaiah 39 as you're reading it to Isaiah 40, and you get these sudden repeated commands to comfort the people of God. The theme in Isaiah up to this point has been judgment. Judgment on God's people, judgment on the nations. But now the theme changes, the whole tone, everything changes. And from now on, it's about restoration. It is about hope in the dark times. Comfort is what what Isaiah is to bring to the people or what his messengers, his disciples are to bring to the people. This word comfort in your Old Testament, if you look it up, it is in the context repeatedly of grief. Grief. Whenever you read the end of Genesis chapter 24, you'll read about Isaac and his mother, Rachel, has died. And you read about Isaac being comforted after her death. It's the same word. In 2 Samuel, David sends comfort to, to a guy whose, whose father has died. It's the same word. It's, it's, a, it's a word that is to do with grief. But we always, you know, instinctively then associate grief with death. But grief is not only to do with death. There are many losses in life that cause you to grieve. Even if someone hasn't actually passed away, there are times in life when you experience grief. Again, it might be disappointment. It might be a relationship that did not work out. It ended and and there's grief associated with it. I feel a sense of grief every May when my upper sixth walk out of my classroom for the last time. I actually find it quite difficult. I've seen these kids every day for four years. Every day, what about you? How was your weekend? What did you do? How was hockey? How was rugby? How are you getting on? And then they're gone. (laughs) Just gone. And I feel this sense of grief. Grief is to do with all sorts of loss. And God is speaking this word of comfort to those who are grieving. And he says, comfort my people. In case these people have thought that over 70 years in exile, their identity has been lost. Because of their sin, because of their idolatry, and now this time that they have spent in Babylon, in case they're thinking, we're not God's people anymore. Everything to do with God has been trampled out of us. God says, no, you're my people. You're still my people. No matter what happens, God still regards you as his people. In in a couple of chapters later, in, in 43, I think it is, God says, fear not, I have redeemed you, I have summoned you by name, you are mine. I remember reading that out about, oh, I don't know, maybe 18 years ago, one Sunday night in Lisnadale, just reading it out during worship, you are mine. And this girl came up afterwards and she'd been doubting her salvation for weeks and weeks and weeks. And that was just a word into her heart. You are God's people. And no matter what you go through, what grief, what pain, what disappointment, what tragedy, he says, my people. Comfort, comfort my people. And and in verse 2, speak tenderly to Jerusalem. This is God. Speak tenderly. And when you look into the Hebrew behind that, that's what it literally says. Speak to the heart. You bring up your blue letter Bible online and you just look down the words and where it says in English, speak tenderly, it says in Hebrew, speak to the heart of my people. Speak to their heart. And this is to speak encouragement. I've told you loads of times, but you've probably forgot that, that in French, the word cur means the heart. And, that, and then from that word cur, we get courage. <clears throat> to encourage someone is to speak to their hearts. 
to put something in there, to put some strength into a heart that is weak and that is struggling, to encourage, is to, to speak to the heart. And God says to Isaiah, comfort my people, speak to their hearts, put something into them that'll strengthen them. John Oswald, who's a commentator on Isaiah, says that the purpose of encouragement in all cases, its purpose is to move someone who might be paralyzed by circumstances. Ever been there? (laughs) Paralyzed by circumstances, yet just can't move because of what's going on around you. The purpose of encouragement is to move someone who might be paralyzed by circumstances to take heart and believe. And that's what the Word of God is doing here. Steve on Friday night was talking about his ministry over recent, recent years and times, you know, of when he was, his ministry was just the music and traveling around singing and sleeping on couches and all this. And then family came and then he got called to, to go and lead a church about six years ago. And he says, now, he's still leading that church, but the way he put it on Friday night, he says, I just, well, all I want to do now is encourage people. That's, what he, that's his calling. That's his ministry. It's not Steve the singer, Steve the songwriter, Steve the pastor. He's like, I want to encourage people. And boy, that's what he did. <laughs> he brought strength to the church. And the message of encouragement that comes is, is, is threefold. Jerusalem is told in verse 2, her hard service has been completed. Exile is over. Her sin has been paid for. And then here's a confusing little verse. She has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. She has received double for all her sins. I have previously viewed that as punishment. But it doesn't say punishment. The word punishment is not there. That's just a wrong mindset and a misunderstanding, I think, on my part. She has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Double what? Double doesn't say punishment. So let's not just insert that. Her sin has been paid for and she has received double. She's received double. The invitation that, that Isaiah gives right at the start of his book is that sins that are like scarlet shall be white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they shall be like wool. That does not sound like punishment. <laughs> it sounds like grace. That sounds like mercy. That sounds like forgiveness. So whenever we read that she has received from the Lord's hand double, I don't think it means double punishment. I think Isaiah, incredible guy that he was, just unreal that that this stuff he wrote about the exile before it happened and he wrote about the return from exile before the exile even happened just outrageous you know and he's he, he doesn't know it at the time and i'm not going to sort of point out every time that that it appears or he appears but you're going to see jesus over and over and over again as we we go to isaiah for hope in dark times you're going to, if you're familiar with the Gospels and you're familiar with, with Jesus, you're going to just see things and like, ah, that's Jesus. <laughs> that's Jesus. Isaiah way, way ahead of his time. Just incredible, the stuff that he wrote. And he talks about her receiving double for all her sins. I think the double, the two things that people receive, her sin has been paid for by somebody else, okay? 
not by her in Babylon. It's not like she went to Babylon and paid for her sins. Israel went to Babylon and was disciplined by God, not punished, disciplined for idolatry. But her sin has been paid for. And Isaiah, I think, is looking further off into the future than he realizes. And he's seeing Jesus. And the double that we get for our sin is one part of it is atonement. And it is to our great shame if we leave people with only atonement because God gave double for our sins. He gave atonement through the blood of Jesus and he gave the power of the Spirit for transformed life. Double. Two things. And I think we need to get our gospel right and we need to, instead of reading this and thinking, God punished them twice and did a proper job of it. That is not Christian, (laughs) okay? It's just not even biblical. He has given double. He has given double. He's not just given the grace once of, of, of forgiveness, but has given the power of the Holy Spirit for transformed living. These are a forgiven people. A forgiven people. And how can this be? Anyone reading this for the first time thinking, how can this be? How can sin be paid for? Anyone reading it for the first time is in about maybe half an hour, 45 minutes, going to get to Isaiah 53. And then there will be mystery revealed as to how these sins are going to be paid for. Verse 3 speaks of a king coming. Anybody hearing these words would know what it refers to. When you were told to go into the wilderness and prepare the way, to make straight a highway, to to raise up every valley, lower every mountain, a king was coming. And in fact, in in a Babylonian inscription that's been found by archaeologists and historians, there is a message sent to a people who are being told that a king is going to come. And what the people, the message they get, the way they are to prepare for this king who is coming is they are told, make his way good, renew his road, make straight his path, hew him out a track. That sounds awful like Isaiah 40 verses 3 and 4. It symbolized the authority of the king. Get rid of everything that stands in his way. And it symbolizes the authority of our king. Not that we're going out and filling in potholes and and building bridges or whatever to, to make a way for him, but that we clear out of our lives the things that would hinder his full coming into our hearts with his kingdom symbolizes his authority but this isn't just any old king because if a real king was coming you did not make the mountains and hills low (laughs) if a real king was coming uh, you did not or just a regular king you did not sort of raise up the valleys you couldn't do that all right a lot of people with a lot of shovels and they're not going to raise up any valleys so whenever Isaiah uses this language he is telling us that the king who is coming is the one and only king, the true king. It is not just a case of mapping out a new road, a new pathway that will avoid the mountains and avoid the low places. The mountains are gone (laughs) and the low places are filled because this king who is coming is not any old king. This is the message of comfort that Isaiah is bringing to the people coming out of exile, living in dark times. The message is this, God is coming. (laughs) The king is coming. That's the good news that he is to bring the people. 
And the certainty of it all in in verse 5 is that because the mouth of the Lord has spoken, it's going to happen. You will see throughout Isaiah, and particularly the second part of Isaiah, the, the repeated emphasis on God's word. In fact, even in these 11 verses, I think 11 times you read about a word or about speaking or about a voice. The sense of the powerful word of God. And no human force can stop him. In verse 6, all people are like grass. Nobody's going to get in my way. Anything that would stand against this God is transient and is fleeting. All the people are like grass. Their faithfulness like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall. You've got this huge contrast. In the previous verses, you have God coming, mountains lowering, valleys being raised up. The king is coming, huge, eternal, powerful, significant. But now what you have is this picture of the complete opposite, humanity like grass, blown around all over the place, fleeting, momentary. In fact, there was a wind, a wind in the Middle East called the Hamzin, which would blow around about May time, and that wind could turn grass from green to brown in about two days, just completely withered. We read here about the breath of the Lord blowing. Any humanity that will stand in his way is like grass that will wither, flowers that will fall. And I think, it, I think he's speaking to both parts of humanity he's speaking to those who are opposed to him that they will not stand and he is also speaking to his own people and saying listen you cannot save yourself you cannot save yourself you're like grass you're weak you're here today and gone tomorrow you cannot save yourself the only way that these people are going to be saved is by trusting God you get this wonderful verse in verse 9 I taught through John's gospel years ago in Listen It Ill on Friday nights and I read this verse at the start every week. And I thought if I ever write a book on John's gospel, I'm going to call it Behold Your God. <laughs> and I think John 1, if you want to you know, bring this into the New Testament even more and you read John 1 with Isaiah 40 in the background, you will see loads of connections. Behold Your God. The good news that is to come, is, is, is to call these people to look at God and to see him coming in verse 10 as a mighty warrior. We read about his strong arm. You know, you, you did combat with your arms. You didn't have anything else, right? You didn't have, you know, what are they, F-18s? You didn't have missiles. You didn't have subs. You, you didn't have drones. You had arms. That's what you had. To do warfare. And God comes with his strong arm, his mighty arm. You read about it in Exodus, this mighty arm being bared at the Red Sea to part the waters. God comes with his strong arm in order to defeat his enemies. But this could cause his people to get a bit jittery. You put yourself in the position of people who've been in exile for 70 years because of their sin and because of their idolatry. And they read about God coming with his mighty arm and you suddenly think, oh my goodness, we're toast. He's finally going to finish us off. After 70 years on death row, this is it. This is the end. He's going to come and finish it. He comes with this mighty arm, 
But what is his arm doing? This is absolutely class, okay? This mighty arm and you're thinking, boom, destruction and his enemies getting wiped out and, and, and all the awe of God. Look what, he going, look what he's going to do with this mighty arm in verse 11. He gathers the lambs in his arms. That's your God. That's your good news. He gathers the lambs in his arms. You see, the warrior is a shepherd. Like King David before him. God, like Jesus, as he comes in the New Testament, the warrior is a shepherd. That strong arm does not wipe his people out. That strong arm lifts his people up. The arm that's raised in triumph against his enemies is lowered in compassion to scoop up his people and to hold them. The warrior is a shepherd. As said in verse, in verse 10, his reward is with him. The sovereign Lord comes with power and he rules with a mighty arm. His reward is with him. You know what that is? When you get the man who is everything, you know, what could God possibly have that he would refer to as his reward? What could he possibly have that he would refer to as, as being something that makes him feel wealthy? Something that he can treasure? Re later in the chapter, you'll read that he owns the stars and he owns the mountains and the nations are like dust before him. What on earth could make him feel wealthy? blessed, rewarded. What, what could it be? What does he have with him? It says in verse 10, his reward is with him. And then you look at the context and you say, what has he got with him? He's got the lambs. His reward is you. His reward is me. We are his reward. We are the thing that he treasures above all other things. All that when you read, and I'm, I'm not going to go into them, but there's a bunch of verses in the middle of the chapter that just talk about the power of God over all of creation and all the universe, all the stuff that we might look at and think that's really valuable. He says, no, no, no. My reward is my flock. My reward is the lamb that I am carrying under my strong arm. You are his reward. You are his reward. Hebrews 12, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. What was the joy set before him? It was you. It was the church. It was the flock. It was the lambs. You see, the warrior is a shepherd. And the joy set before him, this warrior king, is to have his flock and such comfort is good news indeed. It says in 40 verse 9, You who bring good news to Zion, good news to Jerusalem, the message is, Behold your God. He will come with the strength of a warrior, but with the tenderness of a shepherd. Jesus, 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 Jesus. Hundreds of years before Jesus. A hundred years before the exile ended probably 30 years before it started. And Isaiah is writing about Jesus. And what you've got in the, in the middle verses of the chapter, I'm not going to go through them, but you've just got this huge picture of God. It's one of those Job moments where, where you just get absolutely blasted 
with who God is. It starts off, who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand or with the breadth of his hand has marked the heavens? Who has held the dust of the earth in a basket or weighed the mountains on the scales and the hills in a balance? It's like God is this wee toy set of scales on his desk in his study and he picks up Everest and drops it in to see what it weighs. Just this massive picture of God and it's a set of verses there from 12 to 26 It's not there to be explained. You explain this, you kill it. It's just there to be read and be blown away at the magnitude of who God is. This God who is coming. Chapter 40 verse 9 says, Behold your God. Here is your God. Here is the one who is coming. The warrior who is a shepherd. And then it tells you all about him. He is the creator in these verses. He's infinitely wise. He is totally sovereign. He is worthy of praise. He is incomparable. He is enthroned. Lift up your eyes and look at your God. And the question then comes, and this is, this is a quote from a guy called Barry Webb, another commentator on Isaiah. How could you give in to despair with a God like this? How could you give in to despair with a God like this? warrior who is a shepherd who is creator who is infinitely wise who is sovereign who according to verse 26 brings out the starry host one by one and calls them each by name because of his great power and mighty strength not one of them is missing how could you dark times okay How can we give in to despair with a God like this on our side? If God be for us, who could be against us? And we are called by Isaiah. Another word that comes up repeatedly in this second portion of Isaiah is remember. He's constantly calling us back to look again at God, the character of God, the nature of God, the power of God. How can we give in to despair with a God like this? I'll never remember, I'll never forget. (laughs) I'll never forget the afternoon of the 9th of April, 2022, as I sat in one south beside my dad's bed and I realized this is it. It's not going to last much longer. This today is really, really different from yesterday. This is it. And then the the doctor comes, who was also a past pupil, and she was fantastic. And she said to me, David, she said, this is it. I'll never forget it. And all sorts of feelings I had that afternoon as I sat there, just complete whirlwind of emotion. And I felt rage against the devil. And I felt rage against death. And I felt injustice that this man would suffer after the way he lived his life. But I didn't give in to despair because with a God like this, with a God like this, how can we give in to despair? Lift up your eyes in the dark waiting of Advent. Hope in dark times when we get our eyes fixed on the majesty of God, on the warrior who is a shepherd. And the danger for God's people is not that God will turn out to be inadequate, The danger is that we will forget what he is like. 
that we will allow him to be domesticated and made small, that we will convince ourselves that in the midst of our suffering and our world is in ruins, we, we can lose sight of this majestic God. And a doubt creeps in, an insidious lie from the devil then creeps in. And Isaiah names it in, in chapter 40, verse 27. Isaiah says, after this huge picture of God, why do you complain, Jacob? Why do you say, Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord? My cause is disregarded by my God. In light of who this God is, why do we entertain the lie from Satan that God doesn't even notice? That he doesn't even see my pain? I talked at the start, and I'm nearly done. I talked at the start about how for so many people the past 12, 18 months has been grief, pain, disappointment, 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 discouragement, struggle. In the midst of all of that, we can lose sight of God and the the devil gets a megaphone and he starts screaming into our ears, he doesn't see you. He doesn't notice. You are on your own. That's the voice of the devil. God doesn't see. My way is hidden from the Lord. My cause is disregarded. That's what the people are saying. And Isaiah has countered that in the first 11 verses of this chapter. He has shown that God does want to act on, the, on behalf of his people. God is coming. And from verses 12 to 26, he has shown God's ability to act, his utter power and sovereignty. And he's basically saying to the people, in light of all of that, how can you believe that God is ignoring you? Do you not understand? God is completely other. He is completely different from us. He doesn't work on our timetable. He doesn't have our limitations, but he is at work and you can depend on him. And they're called again to remember the character of God in this stunning verse, verse 28. Do you not know? Have you not heard? Rhetorical question. You do know. (laughs) You do know. So it's about time that you started to, to put your mind back to it. The Lord is the everlasting God. The creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary. And his understanding no one can fathom. Tired, weary. Tired, weary. Hebrew, you ready? Yaga and Yaap. (laughs) Yap. Yaga and Yaap. Tired and weary. Tired and weary. Tired and weary. It comes up three or four times in about three or four verses now. Look out for it. We're presented with a God who does not grow yaga and yaap. He does not grow tired or weary. He is not part of creation. He sustains creation. And any apparent delay does not mean a lack of awareness or a lack of ability on God's part. An apparent delay to come to answer our needs is not a lack of awareness or a lack of ability. God does not become tired and weary. No, in verse 29, he gives strength to the weary because he's got an abundance. It's like me with data on my contract and I give data to everybody. 
the start of the month or the end of the month, data to Rach and data to Linda and data to, just data all over the place. God has this abundance of strength, so much strength, and he gives it to others. He gives strength. Look, look at 28. He's not tired. He's not weary. He's not yaga and he's not yaap. He gives strength to those who are weary. And he increases the power of the tired. Anybody tired? You know? Anybody weak and weary? He gives and he gives and he gives. But only those who, uh, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 12, only those who know their weakness and admit their weakness, can experience God's strength being made perfect in their weakness. Even the most vigorous, even the youths in verse 30 will grow tired and weary. God won't. Verse 28. But even those who seem to be full of strength will wear out. Eventually, they'll tire out. The young men will stumble and fall. The world leaders will come to an end. The dictators will fall. The tyrants will topple. doesn't matter how strong people may appear. They will all eventually wear out. And that is a bleak verse for anyone who does not have a source outside themselves. No matter how strong you think you are, you're going to get tired and you're going to get weary and you're going to run out of steam. But those who hope in the Lord, those who wait for the Lord, will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. Buzzards around the land around where we live. And it's amazing on a summer day watching them. And their wings, they never flap their wings. They just put the wings out and just cruise. You know, effortless. They just catch the ruach. They catch the wind. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. So we have God who does not get weary and does not get tired. We have those who appear to be strong, but God says, you're going to get weary and you're going to get tired. Don't kid yourself. And then there are those who come and wait on the Lord and place their hope in him. He says, you're not going to get weary and you're not going to get tired because I'm going to give you my strength. When it says there that we will renew our strength, you probably know that means we will have our strength replaced. (laughs) Strengthened. Not strong, strengthened. We will take from the overflow of his strength and exchange our utter weakness and tiredness and weariness and exhaustion for his strength. It only comes for those who wait on the Lord or hope in the Lord. And waiting, I don't know what waiting makes you think of. Waiting, I think waiting room. And I think sitting, waiting for something to happen. And I think magazines on a table and, that are two years out of date and you're bored and you read the magazine and then you check your phone and then you check your watch and then you check your phone and then you check your watch. and Killing time. Wait, this is not killing time. Waiting is not killing time in the Hebrew mind. Waiting, hoping in the Lord means depending on him. And admitting that we have no other help and we are like grass left to our own devices. Waiting on him is a willingness for him to decide the schedule. And waiting on him, hoping in him is confidence that he will act on our behalf. Those who wait on the Lord will exchange their strength. You will renew your strength. I'm nearly sure Paul read Isaiah 40 on the day that he wrote 2 Corinthians. Therefore, we do not lose heart. 
speak to the heart of my people. Courage. In the dark times, in the grief, in the repeated disappointment, in the plans that have never come to fruition, in the injustice, we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, tired and weak, inwardly we're being renewed day by day. The strength that comes from the warrior who is a shepherd renews us and gives us hope in these dark times. God has come. This is not like Isaiah's time where they were looking and he was saying, God will come. We are on the other side and we can say, God has come. God is here. And as we worship, open your heart and let your strength be renewed. In Jesus' name, let's pray.